0: Hi, my name is Jonathan. I am one of the pastors here at Heights Baptist Church in Alvin. We're so glad that you found us online and wanted to let you know that at Heights, it's our desire to love and to lead all people to a new life with Christ. And one of the ways that we strive to do that is by posting weekly content at all of the places that you might visit on a regular basis. You can find us on YouTube and Facebook. You can find us with a podcast, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out our Instagram page as well. If you're finding us for the first time, make sure that you let us know you were here by going to heightschurch.org slash connect and filling out the digital connect card. We're so glad that you found us. Man, If you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, one you may have brought or one you can open up on your app on your phone, let's go to the book of Isaiah. And uh, I'm going to meet you in Isaiah 52 in a moment. Uh, So Isaiah 52 is where we're going to be. If you're a guest with us, uh, we've got the words on the screen as well for you. Uh, But Isaiah 52, you know, when you think about human history, uh, if you were to draw out a timeline this morning, you just kind of took a sheet of paper and said, all right, here's the beginning of history. And, you know, you drew one line and you started just drawing out a a lineage of history and you kind of place some markers along that timeline. There is one line that you are going to draw on that historical timeline that had, that marks one birth and that one birth on that timeline that line changed everything so that one birth changed all of human history that one birth just changed the course of everything and that is the birth of Jesus and so this morning we're kicking off our Christmas series called the line and we're looking at how the birth of Jesus his birth his life his death his resurrection changes our lives, and it's the hope that every person needs in their life as well. When you come into Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, it is written 700 years before the birth of Christ. And so Isaiah is prophesying a servant to come. And he's going to use that word servant a lot in the passage. And what he's talking about is a Messiah, Now what's interesting about this song that Isaiah is writing in chapters 52 and 53, it's actually a song. And this is the fourth of what's called the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. The first three songs that he writes are about the Messiah that's going to come, that's going to establish a worldwide kingdom that's going to include the Gentiles. But in this fourth song, he does something special. He shows you that this servant, this Messiah, is going to suffer. And it's really interesting when you come into the New Testament and people start talking about Jesus and the disciples at first, when Jesus is like, hey guys, I'm I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die on the cross, but don't worry, three days later, I'm going to come back from the grave, right? And and he's predicting all this. He's predicting his suffering for the disciples. The disciples are always like, no, 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 no. You're not doing that, right? I mean, there's even one time where Peter's like, hey, I talk with the rest of the boys, and no, right? And then Jesus goes, hey, you know what, Pete? Get behind me, you Satan, right? Not a good day when Jesus calls you Satan, okay? Just, if you, if you don't know your Bible a whole lot, then that's not a good day, right? You don't want to put that on the resume, you know? And so here, even the disciples at first are like, ah, I don't, I don't know about this suffering Messiah. But then something happens, After the death and resurrection of Jesus, all those disciples start going, wait a minute, Isaiah wrote something about that. And so seven times in the New Testament, Isaiah 53 is directly quoted. Over 40 times among the New Testament authors, Isaiah 53 is alluded to. And so what you see among the early church is them understanding that Isaiah is talking about this Messiah to come that is going to suffer for us, and the New Testament authors are saying, that's Jesus. That's the one we need. And so when we think about human history, when we think about this line that we can put on that timeline, we see how Christ came to fulfill all the prophecies of the Bible. But what we want to look at specifically this morning is what did Jesus come to do? All right, what is Isaiah saying that this Messiah is going to come to do for us? So I want you to notice first within the text that this Messiah, that Jesus came to show his glory. All right, so Jesus came to spread his glory. All right, so when Christ is going to come, 700 years after Isaiah is writing this, he's doing it to spread his glory. Isaiah 52, let's pick up in verse 13. Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, he shall be exalted. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and had this form beyond of that children of mankind. Verse 15, so he shall sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told of them shall they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So I want you to notice what Isaiah is saying, that this Messiah, this Jesus will come and do. Verse 13, three things. First, my servant will act wisely. So all his plans are going to be accomplished. What he's going to set forth to do, he's going to do. He's going to be high and lifted up. Right. So second, he's going to be worshipped. Third, he's going to be exalted. He's going to be praised. But notice quickly, verse 13, there's praise. Verse 14, there's humiliation. Notice how fast in the song that switches. Verse 14, many are going to be astonished at you because your appearance is going to be so marred beyond human semblance. So so he's saying you're going to suffer so much that you're going to suffer to the point you're unrecognizable. But then notice why he's doing that in verse 14. Why he will allow himself to be beaten to suffer for us was because of verse 15. So he shall sprinkle many nations and the kings shall shut their mouths because of him. You know that, that phrase, sprinkle, meaning nations, the verb sprinkle there, it takes us back to the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus when the high priest would come into the temple and they would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed lamb upon the altar. And when they're sprinkling that blood upon the altar of the sacrificed animal, the sacrificed lamb, that's covering the sins of the people. And so what is Isaiah saying? That this Lamb of God that is going to come, this Messiah, His blood, sprinkled among us, sprinkled out to the nations, to all those whom will believe, it will cover our sins. It will free us. We're now free. We're forgiven because of the blood of Jesus. You may have grown up with the old hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but Yeah, the blood of Jesus, right? That's what he's saying in verse 15. This is what this Messiah, this servant, is going to do. He's coming to spread his glory. But notice secondly what he's going to do. He's going to come to be like us. So when Jesus came, he came to be like us. Continue with me in the song. Verse 1 in chapter 53, Isaiah says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the strength of the Lord. He said, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, verse 3 says, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, And as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah is saying that this Jesus, this suffering servant, is coming to become like one of us. And notice how he describes him in verse 2. He says he's going to be like a a young plant who grew up before us, like a root out of the dry ground. Uh, When I was thinking about that verse, I was thinking about our gardens you know, when you plant that tomato seed, you get that first little sprout, right? That first little plant that comes up and you you walk out and you're like, hey, huh. Hey, you got a little plant, right? Got a little kind of root out of the ground. Not a whole lot to look at. Right? That's a little plant. You know, okay, great. Right? Just a little, little guy. Right? But it's when it later over time, when that tomato plant grows and it starts bearing tomatoes, that's when you come out and you're like, whoa behold the glory of the plant, right? Because now it is blossoming. Wow, look at my tomato plants, you know? And some of you invite the neighbors over, look at the plants, you know, and post it on Instagram and Facebook. Here's my garden. You're not posting the little guy picture, right? You're posting the big picture. You're posting the full-grown plant, And so what Isaiah is getting to here is he's saying, look, you guys have an idea of what this Messiah is going to look like. You and I have ideas in our brain of how our celebrities are to look like. As a culture, we think our celebrities should look like this. Our professional athletes should look like this. The Jewish people have been waiting generations upon generations for the Messiah. They've got a mental picture in their brain of what the Messiah will look like and Isaiah says in verse 3 it ain't a whole lot to look at it's not that he's saying Jesus is going to be ugly he's just saying Jesus is going to look like you and me I mean just remember this Messiah was born in a poor nation he was born to impoverished parents he had an everyday job of a carpenter and so you're looking at him and you're thinking, that's the Messiah? <laughs> like Jesus? I played kickball with that guy when he was you know, in the neighborhood growing up. Right? Yeah. Him? Yeah. That's what Isaiah's driving us to that he became intentionally like one of us in order to die for us. Notice what he's going to do for us. He was despised. He's rejected. He's a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. So Christ knew sorrow. Christ became familiar with grief like you and I are familiar with grief. Why? He's identifying with us in order to die for us. So first we see in this song. That is Isaiah saying, the suffering servant, this Messiah, this Jesus, the New Testament author said, this is who he's writing about. He came to spread his glory. He came to be like us. But I want you to notice the third thing, and this is the part I just love in this passage. He came to be our substitute. Came to be our substitute. He came to take your place in something. He came to take my place in something. Pick up in verse 4. He says, surely He has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced, verse 5 says, for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. In verses four through six, at least ten times there are personal pronouns used our, we, and us. Don't skim over them. Look through those again. Look at those personal pronouns. This is God saying... I care so much about you that I'm sending my begotten only Son into this world for you, to take your place, to suffer for you. Verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs. The word borne there means to take up. Right? So He's taking up our griefs. It's our sicknesses, our pains, our diseases, all those things. He's taking them upon Himself for us. Yet, what did we do? We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, notice what else he's doing. He's pierced for our sins, for our transgressions. He's dying in our place. He is paying that penalty for us. Isaiah is saying being crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we're ultimately healed because of what He's done for us. And who has He done that for? Keep singing with me in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. He's done it for us. And notice how Isaiah describes us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of all of us, the sin of all of us. He's put on Him, verse 6. How are we described? We're described like sheep that have gone astray. But this Messiah, the suffering servant, this Jesus steps in our place upon a cross. And it's interesting to me that often in the Bible, we're described as sheep. And why are we described as sheep in the Bible? Well, if you study sheep and you notice anything about sheep, is sheep do not make the best decisions, right? Sheep just do not. 2005 in a Turkish village, 400 sheep from a shepherd went over a cliff because the first one in the group did it. So then, 399 sheep, boom, right over the cliff because the number one guy did it. Answering the old age question that your parents asked you as a kid: If your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? All those other sheep were like, "Yep, I'd do it." Right? They did they don't make good decisions. Sheep don't. You and I do not make good decisions at all sometimes in life, right? Sheep are directionalists. They are, they are the worst, you know, animals for direction. That's why they need a shepherd. Psalm 23, that God brings us to good grass and says, eat right here, right? I mean, they, they wander, right? Think of that old song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Isn't that our heart's a lot of times wandering from God. Man, is this sin over here better than my relationship with the Lord right now? Is this sin better than what God can give me? Often we wander, we're directionless. You notice the last thing about sheep are they're defenseless. Right? They don't make good decisions. They, they're directionless and they're defenseless. Sheep have no defense mechanism. Right? None. There is no way sheep can defend themselves. How many of you have ever heard of a sheep attack? Ain't happening. Sheep don't attack. Sheep don't fight back. The only way sheep defend themselves when threatened is the only thing they do is they'll bunch up in a herd. That's the only way they protect themselves. They bunch up in a herd, and then they'll kind of like kick one sheep out to the side. There you go. You get Tim because he's been bad. Okay, sorry. You got that one? You're awake now? You know, my parents are here and they're probably embarrassed by that joke, so (laughs) they'll get over it. They know me by now. They're utterly defenseless like we are. Left alone, you and I can't stand up to Satan. Left alone, we have no defense over sin. Left alone, we have no defense over the grave. We need a warrior, we need a shepherd, we need a savior for us to defeat Satan's sin, death, and the grave on our behalf. Amen? Amen. That's what Christ has done for us. That is what Isaiah is singing about. And our hearts ought to sing this way as well, because this is Christ who has become our substitute. And notice how he does it. Notice how he becomes our substitute. Now, I'm fascinated by these next verses. He says in verse 7, he was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before his shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, he made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit In his mouth. I'm floored by verse 7, where twice it says he was oppressed, afflicted, he was beaten, he was stricken. All of our sicknesses, diseases, sin laid upon him what Isaiah said. Yet he opened not his mouth. Two times he opened not his mouth before those who were crucifying him. This is the Messiah who with one word could have slain them all. This is the powerful God in the flesh that Pastor Matt read of earlier. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. This is the all-powerful word, the King of kings and Lord and lords. One word and he could have called all of the angels out of heaven down to fight on his behalf. But what did he do? He remained silent. He didn't do any of that. He remained silent for you. He remained silent for me. Why? Because of verse 10. It was the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Father to crush Him. He has put Him to grief, verse 10 says. So when He makes His soul, He makes it as an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. He remains silent on our behalf because it was the will of the Father to lay all of your sicknesses, all of your diseases, all of your sins upon the Son when He was upon the cross. And the Son went willingly through that plan. The book of Revelation in chapter 13 says this is Christ who is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I like to think of it this way. It's a father that is writing a a masterpiece symphony. And it's a father that has laid out this symphony and he has just written this symphony and it's a beautiful symphony and then he hands it over to the son and he says, here, I've written this for you. You go play it. You go perform it. You go get the glory for that. And that's what the father has done with Christ. He's saying, I've laid this plan out and the father sent the son to the cross on our behalf. So yes, did we have a part in it? Yes, you can look through the biblical gospels and say, who killed Jesus? Was it Pilate? Yes. Was it the Romans? Yes. Was it the soldiers? Yes. Was it you and I? Did we have a hand in the death of Christ? Yes. But ultimately it's the plan of the father for the son to be our substitute so that we may have life and life with the father always. It is Christ that Isaiah is singing about 700 years ahead of time, saying He's going to become our substitute for us. That He is coming to spread His glory among the nations. That He's coming to be like us so He could die for us. But let me end this song this way. It's that Jesus came to provide salvation for all people. He came to provide salvation for all people. Look how the song ends in verses 11-12. through 12. It says, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall righteous the righteous one, my servant, make many uh, to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he is proud, he has poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession For the transgressors. You know, verses 11 through 12 do not teach the doctrine of the resurrection, but what you see is the shadow of the resurrection over this text. Because you see in verse 10, this suffering servant dying the suffering servant being our substitute in suffering for us. So we do not have to suffer the penalty of sin. But notice here verses 11 through 12, Isaiah is writing that this suffering servant will have a victory parade and he will lead the charge. That we will praise Him. He will be the one who has conquered all things. And notice how that is transferred over to us. Verse 11, by His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That that transferred to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says it this way. That He became sin who knew no sin. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And I love that verse because uh, the the Puritan or the reformer Martin Luther said it's a great exchange, that when you give Jesus your sin, and you say, Jesus, I, I can't forgive myself of this sin. I don't want this sin in my life. I want you. And so I'm giving you me. I'm giving you my sin. What you get back in return is the righteousness of God. You get the righteousness of Christ in your life. And that's the exchange that Isaiah is writing about in verse 11, that this servant will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall take our iniquities. In verse 12, he's leading that victory parade. He is the conqueror over sin. He is the conqueror over Satan. He is the conqueror over death. And we get to be a part of that as sons and daughters of God who have come to know the servant in our lives. You know, when this song ends in that verse and we can kind of hear and understand what Isaiah is writing, there's a question that pops in my mind. How is this fair? How how is it fair that Jesus would do this for us? I I mean, if you, you read the biblical gospels, you know, this is Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He was sinless. You know, the Bible says he, he didn't sin. He didn't do anybody wrong, right? I mean, he, he literally let everybody merge in front of him in traffic going up 288, right? I mean, it's just that kind of guy. Like, yeah, you go ahead, you go ahead, right? didn't cut anybody off, nothing. I mean, even the smallest little thing. He didn't do anybody wrong in any way. No sin. Have you ever, comp- have you ever thought about when we say that Jesus never sinned? Like, your brain always goes to the big ones, right? Like, well, okay, yeah, he didn't do that one, that one, that one. No, no sin means no sin, right? Mary cooks a bad meal. Hey, Jesus, was that good? Mom, that one, your best. That's bad tonight, Mary. Gosh, that, was, that was awful. It really, was like you lacked spices. Something was missing, Mom. It was bad, you yeah. know? I mean, even those little things we just call little white lies, like, oh, it's just, yeah, just tell a little white, like none of that, like no sin, no impurities, nothing. Yet he did all of this for us. Like, how how is that fair? How is it fair that Jesus would do that for me? He would do that for you. That the Bible says that we are sheep, that we have wandered from God. You know, it's not fair, (laughs) it's not fair at all. It's not fair to Jesus that this happened. It's not fair for us. This is why we call it grace. Because God's grace means this. It's His unmerited favor. It's grace. It's not what you earn. It's not what you deserve. It's God's gift to you. It's God saying, I love you this much. I'm giving this to you. It's for you to receive. See, His grace, His favor, His salvation—it's not what we earn. It's what the Bible says we have to receive. You know, growing up in my house, um, for Christmas morning, what my dad would often do is code our Christmas presents. I had an older—I have an older sister who's four years older than me—and so dad would always code all our presents. Now, of course, he knew which ones were his because we wrote to dad. You know. But mom, me, and Tanya, we know whose present was whose because my sister had the problem of snooping, right? She, would, she was the snooper in the group, right? Yeah, okay, I'm going to repent later for that, but it's all good, right? You know? So for those of you who know me, you're like, no, 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 all right? So Tanya and I had an equal problem of snooping under the Christmas tree. So dad would code them, like one star, two stars, three stars, and then every year he would know this code, and then he would pass out the gifts, right? Here's the thing. It wasn't my gift until my dad handed it to me. I took it and I opened it. Then it was my gift. Salvation is a gift of God given to you. It is your gift when you receive it, when you believe that this is what Christ has done for you. See, you can hear the good news all you want. You you can sit through all those sermons But until you in your life draw a line, and that's where some of you need to go this morning, you need to draw a line in your life right now and say right here, today I'm drawing a line. No more am I an unbeliever in Christ, but I'm going to draw that line, and now I'm going to become a believer in Jesus. I'm going to receive what Christ has done for me and have all those benefits of forgiveness to now know a heavenly Father that loves me and that gives me eternal life. And so maybe right now where you are today, you need to draw that line and say, today I'm ready to become a believer in Jesus and receive that gift of salvation God's given you. I'm going to invite you to pray just right where you are. With your head bowed and your eyes closed here in this room, maybe at home as well, those of you who are watching, you can receive the gift of eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, right now in your home, right now in this room. And the Bible says that in order to receive it, we, we just we take it, it's, it's ours. It's got your name written on it. It's under the tree, so to speak, but it's not yours until you receive it. You might think, well, how do I receive what Christ has done for me? Well, the great news is God has created such a thing called prayer. And prayer is just telling God what's on your heart. Not any magical words to prayer. It's not a magical formula. It's just you telling God in your own way, Lord, here's what I want to do. I want to receive your grace. I want to receive salvation in Christ and Christ alone today. And so I want to help you. Maybe you just say, I I don't know what to say. I've never prayed in my life or I don't pray often and and I just don't know what to say at all. So I'm going to form a prayer and I'm just going to use some words and and you can follow along with me because the key thing is, it's what you believe in your heart. It's what God knows about you right now. and and you just say, hey, something like this, dear God, today I'm ready to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm ready to draw a line in my life moving from not following you to following Christ. I want to sing with Isaiah (laughs) that he is the suffering servant for me. Father God, thank you for saving me through Jesus. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you this morning that we can read such a text that Isaiah wrote 700 years before the birth of Christ, that one birth that changed all of human history. And Lord, I pray this morning that in our hearts is a song of praise to stop, to reflect upon what Christ has done for us and who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. And so Lord, help us to sing that praise to in Christ and in Christ alone today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.